The Incomparable, number 210, September 2014. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell, and I'm convening, it's sort of like the retro club here. We are going to be talking about Stephen King's novel, The Stand. We have talked about Stephen King before. We did an episode about his book about the time traveler who goes back to stop the Kennedy assassination. Which is, what is it called? 1120... 11-22-63? I can never remember when Doctor Who premiered and when Kennedy got assassinated because they're like two days apart. And I, I'm a very bad uh, student of history and a very good student of Doctor Who. Anyway, uh, but we're back to talk about The Stand. One of, it is my favorite Stephen King novel. It is also, um, I think, my introduction to Stephen King. I've got a great panel uh, with me to talk about this book, which was first published in like 79 and then republished in, in uh, or I guess 78 and republished in 1990. Uh, joining me to talk about it are Lisa Schmeiser. Hello. Hi, I'm happy to be here. When I think about talking about Stephen King novels, I think of two people, one of whom is Lisa Schmeiser. So it's good to have you here. Thank you. I also don't think about Monty Ashley, but he's here <laughs> and I'm happy he's here. <laughs> So yeah, went another way there, didn't I? Hi, Monty. <laughs> Hi. It's good to have you. Is it? <laughs> it is your delightful surprise. All right. Uh, I will accept that as not quite an insult. Okay, good. That's what I was sort of not quite going for. Um, I, I, the, per- the other person I like to think of when I think of Stephen King novels is, of course, John Syracuse, who is here. Hello. You know, after hearing you say to all of us that we don't have to talk too long about the stand, I have one thing to say to you, Jason. You ain't no nice guy. Oh, oh my gosh. I love it. The first reference. We're saving it for the complete and uncut episode. <laughs> yeah. I have to wait like 15 years between this podcast. Or you guys could just talk for five hours tonight and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll first release a one hour long version and then wait for it to, I'll buy my time. Also here to talk about the stand is Erica Ensign. Hello. Hello. I have actually had Stand by R.E.M. stuck in my head all day. because oh, that's of nice. Which is probably not a great choice since it's not at all related, but there goes my brain. Isn't it, Erica? Isn't it? <laughs> the trips Well, it should be Don't Fear the Reaper. kill off the world. <laughs> and, and to everybody else out there who hasn't read The Stand, you shouldn't listen to this podcast. M-O-O-N spells spoilers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You know, just a few, I think mid last week, somebody uh, tweeted at Stephen saying M-O-O-N spells something or other. And I was just shaking my head because I was in the middle of reading the book at that Uh, point. I was like, he is not going to get this, but I get that tweet. I thought we would start by talking a little bit about our personal history with this book since it's been around for a while. Um, I'll I'll start by saying that I had heard that this was a great book, but I didn't read the original. I didn't, I I knew it was out there and I had friends who were big fans of Stephen King and and of this book in particular. And then there was that big publicity campaign in 1990 when the complete and uncut edition that, that is over like a thousand pages. Um, I'm trying to see 1153 is what my copy says came out. And I, I said, okay, that's the one I'll buy and read. And indeed, I have the first edition, and and inside, I have a bookmark of the first complete and cut edition that actually explains what it is from the publisher, which is hilarious. It has a bulleted list of why it's bigger from Doubleday that I still use as the bookmark. It's very very helpful. Anyway, I, I in the summer of 1990, I was uh, working a summer job between years of college at this, as a temp at this like 
power plant out in the middle of nowhere was like 105 degrees. And I remember at lunch hour, I would sit outside in the shade, eating my little meager sandwich and drinking my little can of soda and uh, reading the stand for an hour before going back to the mind numbing work of uh, it really, honestly, the super flu could have come at that moment. And I wouldn't have even noticed because I was out in the middle of nowhere. And Did you really leave bored. behind payday candy bar wrappers? <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> what would Harold do? So, uh, John, what's your uh, what's your history with the stand? Well, I guess before the internet, uh, the only way we had to get things was like uh, the store or mail order. And remember the Columbia House, the like mail order things for for mm-hmm. CDs. That's mm-hmm. kind of how I got into music. Was like the that that record thing. And there was also one for books. Was it also Columbia House? I don't even remember anymore. But it was one of those know. things where you pay a dollar and get five free books or something like that. Was it Quality Paperback Club? Or I did. Yeah, yeah. I did the Science Fiction Book Club. Yep, me too. I don't. I don't remember which it was, but whatever it was, I was doing it at the same time as I was doing is getting the free CDs. And uh, and for whatever reason, I I had bought like uh, you know fantasy novel paperbacks before that, but I got hardcover, the same one you probably have, Jason, the big first edition double day hardcover uncut stand. I don't know how I picked it. I probably picked it because it was like the big thing on the cover of the little sheet that you fill out with a little pen and the check boxes of which free, pick your five free books. And so I don't even remember what the heck the other books were that I got free. And I don't remember how I escaped that plan, probably because I was just a teenager and shouldn't have been signing up for it anyway. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I got the book. for a lot of us. And uh, I think it was also, I was it released in the summertime. I seem to recall reading it in the summertime as well. Yeah. Uh, and so I read through that book. Uh, and when I finished the book, I put it down and just went back to the first page and started over again. And that's the wow. first book I had, wow. I had ever done that with. And The Stand like was was my top favorite book for the longest time, certainly during all of my uh, teen years and young adulthood. So I, I have read The Stand more times than I've read any books except for probably Lord of the Rings. Wow. All right. Um, Erica, what's your story with The Stand? Well, we were we were a library family. Um, we went to the library every couple of weeks, and my mom would get like thirty books, and you know, I aspired to get that many, but it wasn't that many. And I, I want to say it was probably within a year or two of the re-release. She, I think she, my mom had originally read the early version and then decided she wanted to read the expanded version. So I didn't know anything about the earlier version. I just saw that she had this book that was huge. Huge. And I was like, yeah, I was like, okay, I need to read that book. It was just sort of a challenge to myself. It's, it's that long. That is something that I I need to, to read. I don't, I don't even care what it's about. And I was probably like a freshman in high school at the time. So I picked it up and I zipped through it probably way faster than I, I, than I should have because it meant that I was skipping a lot of homework and I just loved it. So I, I haven't read it as many times as John has, but I have read it three or this was probably my fourth time through, but I've never read the original version, just the, like the huge one every time. Complete and uncut. So I have read the Lord of the Rings more times than this because I used to do that annually. I've read them the same amount, which is two each. So just twice each. Monty, uh, what's your story with the stand? You um, just read it last week for the first time. Never heard of it before. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I had read the cut version once. When the uncut version came out, I got the paperback. So I'm a little behind you guys. Uh, looking inside, this is the first paperback printing from May 1991. How much was the paperback? Oh, um... I think I did actually read the paperback, so it would have been about 1991 when the library got $6.99. Jeez, it's $24.95 for the hardcover. I got I got screwed. Good job. <laughs> Way to be a good shopper, Monty. It was free from the library, you guys. Yeah. The other one with the shiny red uh, the, Yeah, the copper-colored. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. as a bonus, the back 
announces that the first two Dark Tower books are out. <laughs> um, I read this book, I think, four or five times in total. But whenever I have anything stronger than a strong cold, I tend to read the first third of it. <laughs> I'm miserable, and I want to imagine that everybody else will soon also be miserable. This cold is going to kill us all. Which, my girlfriend has reminded me, that means this book that I'm holding is probably riddled with disease. Because <laughs> I'm always reading it when I have the flu. It is Project Blue. Maybe yeah. it's keeping you alive. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, just mm-hmm. it's that's an unscientific theory. I, just, <laughs> I hope it made you feel better, Lisa. What's what is your uh, the stand story? Uh, summer of nineteen eighty four. I was able to start babysitting, um, and that was also the summer my mom graciously agreed to drive me to the nearest used bookstore. And every week, I would take the five dollars I had earned, and I would go browse the shelves. And I bought the stand one one week with. Um, along with like four or five other Stephen King books for, for my $5 sum. And I read my way through uh, all the short story collections first. So I read the short story that loosely presages this book. And then I read the stand. And when you're in seventh grade, there's always that when I survive the apocalypse, I'm going to go live in a museum fantasy or, or, or whatever. But <laughs> Nerd. Oh my God, I had a plan how I was going to get to D.C. and live in the Smithsonian and everything. <laughs> but... you, and, you and John should compare notes. John also has some plans about surviving the apocalypse. So. Yeah, but I read the stand and it hit my after the apocalypse buttons and then I just got sucked in and kept going, kept going. Um, so it actually turned into kind of a comfort read through middle school and high school. And then the year I graduated college um, in 1994, my first postgraduate splurge was a paperback of the you know complete and uncut version. And I read it concurrent with the airing of the miniseries. And I was on a beach break with a friend of mine, and this poor woman had to listen to me rant and rave every night about how badly gas Rob Lowe was. <laughs> and that's not in the book. And, and well, I'm not sure Lloyd would do that, but I think I, I really like the way that uh, Miguel Ferrer is playing <laughs> That's, that's okay. He's so, going to get blown up by a bomb anyway. Yeah. Okay. So I've had, I, I, I've probably read the book um, and, and I still reread the stand once every few years when I want an engrossing read that um, I know will reliably entertain me. And I find something new every time. And I think hmm. it's, and, and reading it in my thirties and forties has been a lot different than reading it as a 13 year old. So uh, oh, yeah. I've probably read it about 10, 11 times maybe. Huh. Wow. So well, you know, it's again, I've been reading the same, I've been reading the book for 30 years. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Wow. So I guess the logical next thing to ask would be, what is it about The Stand that makes it so notable in Stephen King's work? Uh, what is it about The Stand that has, all of us have admitted to being multiple time readers of this book? And you know, I, I don't, there are not a lot of books that I reread. There are some. My wife has mm-hmm. a strict no reread policy, which I don't understand, but that's her policy. Um, I admire her discipline. I, I do. There are lots of books <laughs> in the world. There's always other books to read. But I, I don't, I don't read, read a lot, but I've reread this and will reread it again and treasure my mm-hmm. copy. So I, I think I want to start there, which is what is it about this book? What is it that makes it something that stays with you and that you want to revisit, whether you're just feeling sick like Monty <laughs> or or thinking about the apocalypse that is to come or what I'm, I'm curious what you guys think 
Well, I am a rereader to start with. I have a terrible memory, so I can't remember books or movies until I have read or seen them several times. And I really like this book the first time through. And afterwards, I remembered that I liked it. I liked, I remembered that feeling of, of great enjoyment as I went through it, but I couldn't remember exactly what happened. Therefore, I decided to read it again and again. And here we go again. So I think for me, I am a sucker for apocalypse stories. And I think... I like stories about the apocalypse and stories about way after the apocalypse. So the first half of this book mm. is right up my alley. Mm. Um, I, I do like the second half, but it, it definitely tapers off as far as enjoyment goes. So I think quite often when I start rereading it, I'm rereading just to see the apocalypse happen again. And then because I've already gotten that far, I might as well stick around for the <laughs> next 600 pages. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way, actually, that, that I, I, I definitely, maybe we can talk about this later. I, I definitely enjoy the first part more than the, the, the rest of it. And maybe that is because I'm enjoying the, uh, the, the layout of the actual apocalypse as it, as it spreads and, and in the immediate aftermath, as opposed to sort of then the ba- battle between good and evil that comes after. Mm-hmm. What, what else? Uh, One what of el- my favorite parts of the apocalypse scenario that you guys are talking about is one that I didn't get to read until the complete version came out. And it's chapter 38 where they describe all the ways that people die that aren't the super flu. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, like the poor kids who die from neglect or the girl who gets locked in the freezer with her husband and her son. um, The woman who blows herself up with a gun, the heroin addict. I love that chapter. Um, I don't know why. I just really do. <laughs> but I think I think because it points out that you can have this, you know, again, romantic adolescent fantasy about, oh, surely once I survive, it's it's all, you know, cheat cakes and victory and putting myself to sleep by the Hope Diamond every night. And <laughs> then someone points out that, no, as a matter of fact, the world becomes a lot more dangerous and you are a lot more alone in it. But I think why I keep rereading is... I always find someone new to latch onto, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like the first reread I did where I realized that when Stephen King was writing Harold Lauder, he was essentially putting a, um, an avatar for a youthful, his own youthful writerly ego in the book was, was kind of an eye opener. I thought, Holy crap, this is a guy who's, who's just looked back on his work. This is a guy who's, who's sublimating his own self-loathing and his fears about his, his writing into Harold. And, um, it, it gave me a lot more sympathy for that character, for example. Um, and again, as I find as I get older, different characters do or don't resonate with me the way that they would have when I was a teenager. Um, that said, my crush oh, on true. Glenn, my crush on Glenn Bateman, however, has been going strong for about thirty years. <laughs> oh my god, I can't explain it, but there it is. <laughs> I like that it's essentially three or four different novels in a row mm-hmm. that you get people worrying about the spread of the disease and then the disease itself. And I too love chapter 38 because it shows that the author has put actually put in thought into what are the effects of all these things that I'm doing to earth or at least America. I guess we don't really know what happens to the rest of the planet. It's probably not great, but there aren't that many books that take huge tonal shifts where you start off with an entire world and then 500 pages later, you're reading notes from a sub, uh, notes from a subcommittee on whether or not to take a census. Exactly. Well, I mean, this could this could have been, you know, two books or three books. I suppose that yeah. would have been another way to tell it. And at a different point in the publishing industry and in Stephen King's career trajectory, maybe it would have been. I don't know. Yeah, he, yeah. he could have started it 500 pages in and just said, 
there was an apocalypse and everybody but the people I want to talk about died. But he yeah. really takes his time making that happen. I find it fascinating that Fran is such a naturally gifted writer and he just, you know, it's not, he's got some weird veins of subtlety through the book, but I, I have found it interesting that that in the Fran passages, he, he points out what a natural voice she has and what a natural impulse compared to Harold, who who desperately wants to be a writer and lets his own stupid nature get in the way. So I think King was actually working out some 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 artistic crisis issues along the way with this book too. This I've talked about this on past podcasts how I like apocalypse stories as well. And this and we've also talked about this in the past, but there's lots of different kinds of apocalypse and the most appealing kind to me and one I had never read up until this point was I guess I think you had called it the clean apocalypse, where things aren't destroyed or blown up or radioactive. There's dead bodies everywhere, but they eventually, you know, liquefy and dry up and the animals eat you know, like take care mm -hmm. of themselves eventually. But everything else is still there. Uh, and so it fulfill, it's like it's, you know, living in the Smithsonian, wherever you want to live. The thing that you wanted to do when all those people, you know, it's, it's a book for introverts. People get rid of all yeah. those other people, but leave all mm -hmm. their stuff because that stuff is pretty cool. Uh, and so that was exciting. And they left their stuff and, and there weren't enough of them left to eat all the canned food or anything. So things yeah. are in pretty good shape, given that almost everybody is dead. Right. And if you read this book, read this book as a teenager, which sounds like a lot of us did, uh, there are many, many characters for you to identify with as an introverted teenager mm -hmm. in, in this story. And it okay. definitely changes, of course, as, as you age and read the book and start relating more to the adults in the story and everything like that. But so many characters that, you know, I don't know if necessarily Harold is, is Stephen King or some part of himself in there, but like it's interesting takes on these type of things. And we'll talk mm -hmm. about the characters later, but like it's not you think you know where everything is going to go, especially if you've read a Stephen King book before, because usually Stephen King wants to have like one or two Stephen Kingish protagonists and you kind mm -hmm. of know that underneath it all they're really good people and they're going to face challenges and they're flawed or whatever but there's so many people in this book he can do like the Joss Whedon thing and like oh actually that guy you like is going to die how do you like that oh, you know or, yeah. or, or yeah. this is going to this is not going to turn out well you know I mean if Harold was the only character in like if there was a protagonist in Harold and like a, a big baddie bad guy in a regular Stephen King book Harold would not have ended up the way he did, but there are so many freaking characters in this book that he can he can do everything. He can surprise you, and I was just riveted through the whole story. Like it just affected me. I don't think I had ever read a book with that many characters again, except maybe Lord of the Rings. But Lord of the Rings does not spend a lot of time uh, fleshing out, like even like Aomir or something. You know, yeah. it's not not yeah. a lot of time. Whereas Stephen King is like, I know how to do characters. I he ha clearly has an affection for all these characters, good and bad. And he's going to give each one like 150 pages, and you end up with yeah. a thousand page book. Well, he's got a tremendously generous heart in the book too because i i feel so bad for lloyd every time i read Aww. this book i feel bad for lloyd <laughs> yeah poor dumb lloyd mm -hmm. well i feel for lloyd the one i the one i've, I've never stopped feeling sorry for though is naomi because she just had no chance at all you know i mean there's mm -hmm. that one moment on a hillside where she could have chose differently and i i've i've often thought um how monstrously unfair the 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 god of this book is with the way, you know, he, he lays punishments on people for free choice for life. And, and Naomi is just this horrible, horrible warning that, that, but yeah, he's, he, I, John, you're right. There's 150 pages. Although Monty, was it you when you and I were talking on Twitter and you said that you really could have done without the part about the kid? Um, yeah, I've got some problems with the kid. Yeah. And I could I will, also do without the kid. Once not, once we start talking about the time that this book is set, I will have much more to say about what I think is going on with the kid. I, I realize that we have had um, several episodes of this show 
involving uh, books about the apocalypse, and that is, I, I think, due in, uh, to a lot of influence of uh, of John and Lisa <laughs> suggesting this. And 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 you know, because we both love the apocalypse yeah, so and, much. And it turns out bringing me in's only going to make it worse. It, it turns out it's nice. It turns out I, I like them too. Um, but but it, it is fascinating. About I always ask what what draws us to it, and 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 there's this idea. First off, there there's just this feeling about the fragility of society and how how does the world end? And here it is a fairly um, we watch it play out, but really it's it's a premise in action, which is what if almost everybody died, and then he's got a reason why everybody dies, and it's not yeah, and it's it's basically accidental release of a biological warfare agent that that kills everybody and, mm-hmm. and 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 then they're swept aside and then what's fascinating to me is that then it's all about the what happens when you find yourself alone and society has vanished and what do you do and what how do you survive and 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 that leads into that second phase of the book which is kind of fascinating which is this weird like uh, you know, we hear that there's some lady out out west that we're gonna go find, and it's strange and, um, and and has almost like a mythical quality to it. But it's also, you know, it's also it says something to me about like people are trying to find somewhere to go and something to do because they it's you know it's over the the story that they thought they were living in is over, and it turns out they're in a very different kind of story, and that that is fascinating too. I, I think. Yeah, I mean that that those are the most interesting parts of the book to me are are when the world is ending and then immediately after where everybody is uprooted and has no idea what they're going to do to survive and they're kind of like glomming on to people they find and those people are sometimes good and sometimes not. Mm-hmm. I think when it gets to the you know the end part where it's really sort of the good versus evil and they're also having town meetings and stuff, I sort of <laughs> bifurcate myself a bit and I enjoy it on two completely different tracks. I really like the 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 town meeting style stuff, like how does society <laughs> try to rebuild its stuff, both on the you know the the good side and the bad side. But I don't like mixing that with the good versus evil thing. I prefer my good versus evil stories to be <laughs> a little bit more in your face with you know dragons and stuff like that. So I'm also enjoying... You like it to be more in your face than Randall Flagg? He's a little too subtle for you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess I mean fantastical. Um, All right. It's yeah. probably a better better term for that. So I'm still enjoying the good versus evil thing, but... So so dragons are slightly more fantastical than a giant hand made of lightning coming out of the, out of the middle of nowhere? He saves that for the big finish, though. Yeah. And he changes the animals a lot, but you know. Yeah. yeah. It's more about the setting. I I prefer Mm -hmm. it not to be in a real world type Uh, setting. Yeah. Time for a brief break to tell you about our sponsor. It's lynda.com. You've heard me talk about lynda.com before. L-Y-N-D-A.com. Lynda.com is the place to go when you want to learn stuff. They have more than 2,400 courses. And that's not all. All the courses are taught by the experts. These aren't people who are making things up because they read it out of a book. These are the people who know how to do this stuff, and they're going to tell you. And they're going to do it on video. And that video is going to be produced in lynda.com's beautiful video studio. So it's high-quality, professionally produced video from the experts. So it's easy to learn. It's very clear. It's well put together. You can watch the videos on your computer, on your smartphone, on your tablet. It works everywhere. And there's one low monthly price to get access to all 2,400 plus courses. $25 a month gives you unlimited access and you can learn as much as you like. There are courses for every experience level imaginable. So if you just want to get started learning about something, lynda.com can help. And if you're a pro, but you want your skills to be a little bit better, there are advanced courses as well. 
Think about the software you use every day. Anything in the Adobe Creative Cloud, Microsoft Office, the Apple Pro apps like Final Cut and Logic, all of that stuff. There are lynda.com courses to help you stay current, to get what's new with new features and new versions. It's all there. There's an iPad for Business course to get maximum productivity out of the iPad. There's a Google Docs and Sheets on iOS first look that's out now. Keynote 6 training. Really, if you can think about it, there's probably a great lynda.com course on that subject. And the courses are all broken down into little bite-sized pieces. So even if you only have 15 minutes, you can learn something because you can look at the course and jump right to the part that you want to learn about. It really is great stuff. If you haven't checked it out, I encourage you to check it out. And here's the best part. You can check it out for free for seven days. And it's not just a little taste. You have access to the entire lynda.com library for seven days. You can learn so much that you will become a super genius and take over the world after seven days. Or you can keep on going as a lynda.com member after that. But here's where you go to get seven days of mind-expanding video training for free lynda.com slash incomparable that's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash incomparable to try lynda.com free for seven days l-y-n-d-a dot com slash incomparable and thanks so much to lynda.com for sponsoring the incomparable that i i find the vegas chapters problematic but the reason i do is because there's I, i don't think he ever fully fleshes out the parallel between the the las vegas society and the Boulder Society, other than oh, Las Vegas already has the lights on, and Boulder, they're all just kind of, you know, the, the implications that in Boulder, they're kind of disorganized because they're all very nice, whereas in Las Vegas, everybody kind of has this natural bent towards toadying, and so they're okay with being bossed around. And um, he only goes into this once or twice. Um, oh, gosh, there's I have to find the passage. It's about um, Dinny, who has the rotating cast of mothers. And there's only a few passages here and there that talk about how the people who ended up in Vegas are not necessarily all evil. They're just people who, who drifted one way or another because of fear or because of an inability to reflect on the contents of their own characters. And I really wish that King would have done more of a meditation on, on how, how, how very little difference there is between so-called good and so-called evil, that it just comes down to a series of choices that you do or don't consciously make all the time. But that stuff, think, isn't, yeah. that stuff isn't as fun as following Trash Can Man around the desert. <laughs> oh, he's another tragic figure. Oh, yeah. Old Lady Simple's pension check. He was somewhat fair to the bad guys. Like, it, it's not, it is a little bit one-sided because there's way more good guys that are fleshed out. But we, we talked about Lloyd, I think, and it's before the show. And, you know, there's, there's not a lot of bad guy characters. But for the most part, everybody who's in Vegas who gets fleshed out a little bit has a reason for being there, has their own motivations. The only one who is ridiculously evil is Flag, and even he is, uh, you know, sort of evil but doesn't quite understand why and, is, you know, starts to fall apart towards the end. He starts off as this elemental force, but then towards the end, he's, he's more shaky, and it's clear that he's like, well, he's kind of a man, but he's also kind of this force of nature, but he's not behind the force of nature, and, you know, it all comes to a head at the end. Uh, the good versus evil thing... I don't. I think that blends well with the apocalypse because once you just have like a bunch of people rattling around the United States, like it seems like you know the, the world shrinks so much. Like obviously, if you do the math, there's way more people than there are in Boulder or Las Vegas left in the country. But yeah. we just focus on this small group. And once you're just rattling around in the country like that, it's very easy to slip back in sort of primalism and tribalism. And one right. of my in my future in my later reads of this book, one of the interpretations I've started to latch onto is that. Uh, it is the really real world, 
and there's not really any you know Stephen King style magic and supernatural stuff, but as soon as you strip everything away, people immediately fall back to their primitive you know demon haunted world kind of uh, you know superstitions. And this story of what happened between this group in Las Vegas and this group of Boulder gets retold a few times, and eventually all the superstitions become actual magic, and the stories about, you know, Randall Flagg become real stories. And, like, you can you can look at this. I mean, we talked about this with Totoro. We can connect this to Totoro somehow. You can look at this and say, <laughs> sure, uh, this this is an entirely, you know, this is how the, this story is viewed. But realistically, what really happened is, like, Trash came in, just rolled up with, with a nuclear bomb and blew everybody up. And it wasn't the hand of God that set it off. It was this crazy guy who thought he was going to be, you know, like, there are all plausible logical explanations for something that could, that could play out like this, and it can just become an embellished in in the retelling three or four times that's all it takes right and why would that happen why would this otherwise rational people start believing in this magical story two or three generations because that's exactly how it happens all the time and so Mm -hmm. not that i'm saying that's my favorite interpretation of the book but the more i read it the more i say the more i like looking at it as like everything has an actual real explanation and the good versus evil thing is just kind of like retconned into it like oh of course there was a super evil guy and we were the super good people and you know what i mean I think you have to so dismiss you the dreams. That, the, how, do you, how do you explain the, the last two pages of the book, which is that Randall Flagg ends up revived on the shore of some African nation? Right. Well, that's the story of like, well, you can never actually kill evil kids because, you yeah. know, it always comes back. Right. And I mean, I, I'm not saying like I, I say that's what obviously that's not the intent of the author and that's not <laughs> the primary interpretation of the book. But sometimes when I squint that, especially the thing with the bomb going off, because that is like the most overt guy. Hey, guys, there's magic. And oh, here's the hand of God. And it's like. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Or maybe the thing just went off accidentally because no one is going to be alive to tell the tale. So who's, you know what I mean? And then we have to, you know, the omniscient narrator tells us this is what happened. But if you just see a big mushroom cloud in the distance and, you know, Stu ends up going home and retells, like the, it, it explains how legends come to be and that almost everything that happened in this book is real. Certainly the apocalypse is, is science based or whatever. And then all the dreams they have and the sort of Old Testament God. That's one of my favorite things about this book. Like Mother Abigail's God is the Old Testament God, not the, not the New Testament. And so, no, so no. Look at, give me that old time religion. So there's, there's a lot of that sort of baked into the book. Like it's not the kinder, gentler God. I mean, you know, it's the strange, arbitrary, weird one. And you can you can retcon it all and explain it away. Well, I mean, to, to rephrase what you're saying, I think what you're saying is, you know, that that's why this book has this mythical kind of feel to it. Whether whether even when it's not intended, that's how it that's how it feels. That's yeah, how it like if, if that's is, literally what happened, this literally is like one of those stories. And if it wasn't what happened, this is how those you know. Yeah, this is a yeah. struggle between good and evil. As a as a relatively skeptical person, I would say I, one of the things that I like about this book is the fact that it is not. I like that it's telling this this you know almost mythological story about good and evil and the, the forces lining up against each other because quite honestly one of the things that exhausts me about so many apocalypse stories is that it's just uh, well what happens afterward everybody kills each other and eats each other until there's nobody left and then we're all dead and that's the end and here it's like no 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 there's another story that happens which is this you know ultimate battle between the forces of good and evil and all the it people are going to go to las vegas where they're going to get electricity running and that's evil i think well yeah well because glenn bateman's got that glenn bateman's got the speech where he says um because he he lays it out and he says well flag's going to get scientists engineers military types and law enforcement because they like structure they like order and they're going to jump at the opportunity to to follow somebody who offers them a promise of that and um I remember reading that again as a kid going, ooh, that's harsh. And and now I read it yeah. more person like, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> in, in general, like Stephen King, 
for most of his stories, doesn't do the Marvel movie thing where the world always has to be in peril. A lot of the stories, especially his early ones, were small. Something happening in a small town. There's one vampire mm. in a small town. <laughs> There's a girl who's telekinetic in a small. Like the world it's is always not the constant. same small town, though. Well, um, you know, they, they, it's they not they're all very Castle similar. Castle Rock. Sometimes uh, it's dairy. Right. <laughs> but, but like, it doesn't have the disease where world. You know, fantasy novels have this the worst. The world is always in peril by it's the resurgence of some ancient evil. Or like, it's always the world. It's never like just with in some village there's one werewolf and we do a whole story about that and like who cares you could wipe out the whole village and no one notices a little town in maine but uh he has two you know two sort of great works that intertwine that are world in peril things or you know like the dark tower and the stand uh and those were his like you can argue which one is like you know obviously the dark tower is sort of the cornerstone of his entire work and wraps everything up but the stand is the one big sort of pillar in you know i'm going to i'm going to kill everybody in the world this is this is a world in peril fight for the soul of humanity good versus evil uh which he didn't indulge in in his career up to that point i'm trying to think of what did he did he go back to that i think this is more or less the only sort of uh realistic world in peril thing uh and then there's the dark tower which is worlds plural in peril which right is but, it, but it's it's the scale. expansion this of one. this idea right i mean the, the dark tower yeah. is kind of the stand writ large in a way it, well, but it's all it's all interconnected. I mean, you've got like one of my favorite things is like if you just if I was going to recommend someone read three things by Stephen King, it would be like the entire Dark Tower series, The Stand in the Eyes of the Dragon, just to see how yes. you can take <laughs> how you can take three entirely different genres and and styles of books and audiences and connect them all into one big thing. And it's just it's just fascinating, a fascinating train wreck or a fascinating, beautiful <laughs> tapestry, depending on how you look at it. Actually, the very first time that I reread The Stand was after I had started reading the Dark Tower books. And I was like, oh, yeah, like he, somebody told me that he weaves them in a little bit. So I was like, OK, I'm going to read all of his other stuff that has little connections to The which Dark Tower, which all is just stuff. about everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so yet? I did. And uh, and then actually just before I read The Stand this time, I had just finished reading Wizard and Glass again, which has the scene where those characters are walking through what seems to be Kansas during the time of the uh, post-apocalypse. Because, um, you know, they see a, a newspaper that says Captain Trips on it. And I was just like, oh, I just get that little shiver every time I see that part again because of it's, it's that book. Um, but then they also point out that the, uh, the baseball team is, what is it, the Kansas City Monarchs instead of the Kansas City Royals. So it's not actually our world. We could still be in for this. Oh, dun, 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 the Kansas City Monarchs was the Negro League team. Mm-hmm. True, but in this, in this, in Wizard and Glass, it's the uh, their MLB, uh, Major League Baseball right. team. Lisa was mentioning Glenn Bateman's speeches before, and I remember yes. my first couple of read-throughs of the books. That was my favorite part because it was like a character in the like you'd always want a characters characters in the book to discuss like the discuss what's happening in the book just to not sit down and talk about it and the few times that they did that it's like yes glenn is finally saying all the things that i'm thinking what are the people going to do let's discuss it like instead of just the characters being in dread and always running from chases or whatever he yeah. would sit down every once in a while and say well let's think how this is going to turn out i'm like see that's exactly that's the only conversation i would ever be having with people would be like yeah. constant rehashing of glenn's conversations <laughs> There, there are some characters I have more of a problem with as I get older, just because I think, oh, you know, you, you tried, buddy, but you didn't quite nail it. And um, I have rarely connected to the women in this book the same way I've connected to the male characters. And I have spent a lot of useless time thinking about whether that's because King wrote this as a comparatively young man and was still developing the kind of imagination and empathy needed, or whether it's because... The book was written during the 1970s, and perhaps gender attitudes were that dramatically different, 
or what the story is. But um, there's an awful lot of slapping of women's faces that takes place in like the first quarter of the book. And uh, I've always been vaguely bothered. I've always been kind of bothered by, by, by two things, by Miss Abigail's, you know, elderly mystical black woman shtick because it feel it, it, it does feel kind of shticky. You know, it's it's the kind of thing that young white men write when they're oh she's mystical she's because so she's wise. she's well she's <laughs> she's so profoundly othered like oh she's a woman and she's black and she's old she, and she's basically she's Yoda and she's in yeah. the Midwest she, exactly she's no totally Yoda. yeah no she's absolutely like she she's every possible other you can tick off on the box and and that's always bugged me the the, the way that he's written her um, especially the passage about how much she enjoys sex and uh, then I've always had a difficult time connecting to. Uh, like the, the, the part of the book that I feel the best toward Fran is always the part where she's burying her dad. And mm-hmm. then after a while, I've, I've always kind of had a heart, Fran, what the hell are you thinking is, is, is going through my mind through most of the rest of the book, most of the time. And again, I've tried to figure out if, if this is a, a, the result of King writing this when he was very young, because he's got a roster of great female characters through a lot of the rest of his books, or if this is an unwitting reflection of the time period in which King was writing this book or what. But there's there's something about you know, Lucy and Nadine and, and, um, and, you know, yeah. the, the Dana Jurgens the Dana Jurgens lesbian turn on and off thing is, is a little problematic. And, and, you know, I'm all, eh, this is this, if you're writing this book now, I think you'd get dinged for it. Yeah. I, I never actually noticed that sort of stuff when I was younger. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of, the, the first few times through, I think I related to Fran and then now reading it, uh, I really don't in part because I'm older than she is and she acts a lot younger than she is, I think in many yeah. cases, but I think also just the fact that there aren't a lot of women when, when you compare it with the number of well-developed male characters and then the choices that they're all kind of archetypal and you do get a lot of that on the male side but I think there are enough guys that they're not all that way so you've got Mother Abigail as the you know archetypal other Yoda woman basically and then you know you've got you've got Nadine as sort of the femme fatale and uh, Lucy is the girl yeah that too and then you get the girlfriend and the mother figure you know Fran turns into the mother figure after being just like the wayward wayward daughter figure and none of them seem quite as real to me as any of the uh the male characters throughout but I thought that perhaps one of the reasons for this is the archetypal thing this is a story of good versus evil the characters all sort of do have a little bit of that in their DNA um I think that it it fits so I I I don't get too worked up about it but I do tilt my head a little bit Uh, I feel that King's point of view can be shown by right at the end of the book when even though he's given us dozens and dozens of characters Pretty much the four living white middle-aged dudes go off to solve the problem. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, most of them die. Yeah, three out out of the four end up dead, and the fourth ends up saved by a mentally challenged man. (laughs) They get to go be Christ figures, but it's basically (laughs) everybody else stay at home. Yeah, I I think it's clear that King understands the male characters in the book (laughs) more than he understands Mm -hmm. the female ones, and it's he's at this point in his writing career where that makes a difference in his characterization. He'll give more time to the male characters and their their internal monologues and motivations and actions make more sense from the various perspectives. Obviously, he clearly understands Harold and the older men are sort of like what he wants to be. But the women, they do fall into all these roles and it, the, the roles they fall into are the roles, I don't know if the roles that Stephen King sees for women or that women have in the 70s, but so many of the women's opinions, not just in this book, but in a lot of his books, 
have to do with how they relate to the men in the books. Oh, yeah. Which man are they going to choose as their man? Which man will be their protector? Which man fulfills that? Like, they're, the women are looking towards the men, and the men are looking towards the horizon. Yeah. Uh, and yes. so they end up either th- they end up either thinly drawn or uh, just not given as much time to develop. I mean, like the other the other stereotype is that the you know they get the tough butch le- lesbian one, and like he tries to show them as ha- being complex and making decisions that affect the rest of the story and so on and so forth. But it's all kind of writ small. Like there's not a lot of the women worrying about how they're going to fix the problem of the world. Like, uh, and the men, you know, some of the men are thinking about it, some of them aren't. So that it's just a, a weakness of, I think, a, a young author. And to mm-hmm. be fair, when you have a book with this many characters, yeah. it's hard to make all of them great. And he, he just, eventually you just, you know, you just end up leaning on the ones you can do better. So he just does the male characters better. Uh, you know, he does, as an author, I think he gets better with the women. And I think if you reduce the character count, he can imbue the women with more interesting things, like all the way down to like a book like Gerald's Game, where he's like, look, yeah. I, I really got to get this right. It's just going to be a woman. She's going to be my thing. I'm going to do the whole book from her perspective. And then she becomes an entire person. He, I mean, he's he's an older guy. He does have his weird prejudices. But uh, yeah, that's in repeated readings of this. And I said this used to be my favorite book. I think Lord of the Rings has passed it simply because now as I read it and I get older, I see sort of all of the things that you didn't see when you're younger. And the, the writing's not as strong as King's later work and the characterizations mm-hmm. are not as rich or sophisticated as they could be. I still love the story. I, I'm willing to forgive a lot because of the pulpiness. Like it's kind of, you know, mm-hmm. trashy, pulpy, soap opera-ish, sci-fi apocalypse. Like I'm willing to forgive a lot for that fun. But, it, you know, it, it has it has decreased in esteem in, in, in my yeah. mind over the years. Well, the two the two people who kill themselves over the course of the book because they can't handle living without a man or having a man take care of them are both are both women because you've got uh, Rita, the socialite that kills herself around Larry. Yeah, and, who wouldn't? Well, uh, Larry. Oh, Larry. Um, <laughs> but you've also but you've also got um, Perry, who is briefly mentioned in a few chapters, um, who kills herself after poor Stu botches Mark's append, uh, you know ap- appendectomy. And by the way, that appendectomy scene is actually one of my favorites that got added back into the expanded book because it really points out how, how quickly you can be laid low. Um, Eternal Enemy of the Podcast, David Brin, actually has a nice... Um, <laughs> has a is nice, that official? <laughs> yes. Has cool. a nice, he has a nice throwaway line, actually, in The Postman of All Things, where um, a character kind of loses his head when somebody steals his tooth powder and his floss. Because one of the things that's been killing people in that post-apocalyptic landscape is... Um, the the what is it perinat peritonitis yeah yeah and that's been killing people and so this guy's fanatical about his his tooth regimen and I had never really stopped to consider that yeah you know um, if the bacteria get into a, a ulcerated gums it's done with and so I love when stuff like okay once upon a time I had this malady I could have gone to the ER and gotten it taken care of overnight turns into oh crap I'm going to die in a lot of abdominal abdominal pain. <laughs> Uh, to be fair to Stephen King, actually, his first published novel was Carrie. Mm. Yeah, but I don't want to make it sound like he never wrote about women. He just <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like he has a, he has a deeper, intuitive understanding of men. That's one of the books that passes the Bechdel test in that it's not all women talking to each other about about guys because. Yeah, it's uh, pop up a lot. But, it's um, the women talking to get to each other about God. Yeah. <laughs> so we're on we're on characters now. I think this is this is our opportunity. Before we get to that important talk about the time frame and the expanded edition and all of that, let's talk about the characters because I think one one of the things that we didn't mention really, except in passing when we were talking about the appeal of this book, I think it's got to be the characters. This is a huge cast. 
And uh, the, there are some really memorable people in this cast of characters. This is a, this is a, you know, there, it isn't just about three or four people who walk off to Las Vegas to get killed. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's this huge widescreen um, set of characters. So if you guys have uh, uh, more characters you want to talk about now is your chance. Uh, we haven't mentioned Nick and Nick's uh, Nick, Andrews. Nick Andrews. So great. Yes. I love him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think he's. It's hard not to. Harold is kind of like the uh, the novelization version of the character from one of my favorite Jonathan Colton songs, uh, "The Future Soon," oh, where yeah, yeah. it's he's he kind of more or less gets his wish, and that he survives the apocalypse. Everyone else is gone, all his tormentors. Uh, he finally has time to write, you know, in his underpants or whatever he's doing, sweating away there. The, the one girl he liked in town is the, is is left. Uh, he is he may literally be the last man on earth, uh, and he has the chance to remake himself. And uh, it, it doesn't start off well for him, but like it, it, he almost gets it. It's like okay, well, I can be a new person in the society. I can be different than I was. I'm useful. I'm smart. People look up to me. The great, you know, turn turn where Larry says that Harold becomes a legend in Larry's mind because they're following all his signs and the disconnect between like this kid that he meets who's so insecure and obnoxious and everything and the guy who had the smarts to write those signs. Uh, but he doesn't turn it around in the end. In the end, he is his own worst enemy. In the end, uh, you know, the, the the robot wars cause his love to you know have bionic eyes and, and realize that he is the person who caused all this and it's it's kind of a tragedy uh but like i said in in a book with fewer number of characters or in a more conventional stephen king novel he would have turned it around but he doesn't have to turn it around in this book he's allowed to follow a course that seems very realistic and likely in that he he ends up he, he ends up being his own worst enemy and can't pull out of uh you know i mean he makes he more or less makes a conscious choice he can't let go of his hate uh, and i like that type of story because it's not the easy one where when everybody's gone uh, you know, you will be able to to sleep in the Smithsonian and you'll be a great person and you'll get the girl and everything will be great. It's like wherever you go, there you are. You, you're not going to be able to escape yourself. Uh, and despite your efforts to the contrary. And I, that's why I really like his storyline, because it, it's I mean, it strikes me as not being cliched. And I I feel for him every time through like you hate him and you want him to be punished so badly. But so many times you're like, oh, Harold, you were so close. You were so close. <laughs> oh, I always just feel so sorry for him. I think that's why he's one of the characters that I definitely had to grow into. When I read it as a youngster, I was really sort of just seeing the black and white two dimensional part of it. And I was just angry at him all the time and didn't care. And now that I have, have grown up and actually had some life experiences and, and battled a little bit with the good versus evil in myself, I, I can feel a lot more for his character and i would like to think that i have turned it around and done things okay but i can understand his sort of inner turmoil trying to fight back and forth so it's a much much deeper more meaningful character transformation well near transformation for me now than it was when i first read the book the first couple times well as a teenager i was sitting next to harold lauder in school and uh, <laughs> and so that was the reason i didn't like him was because i was already dealing with people like him every mm. day but, but, you know, once you get older, and like Erica says, you've had to have a reckoning with the limits of your own uh, strengths and weaknesses. And um, you have to start and you start living with the consequences of decisions you've made. It's easier to go back and look at Harold and see the times when the deck has been stacked against him and how easy it was and for him to make some decisions and how hard it was for him to sit, to stand by and, and not make others. Um there's a there's a the conversation that Stu has with uh, 
Harold, where, where they, they, they try to settle things over Fran, for, over Franny. And, and Stu, of course, lies like a rug about his interest in Fran. But there's that moment where, where and King writes it beautifully, where it's, it's pretty obvious that if Harold just lets go of his, his petulance towards the old, old, old world and recognizes that he can be somebody new, like he and Stu could really, you know, carry each other through this and, and, and be good people together. And he doesn't do it. And I read that now and I'm like, Oh, Harold. Oh, Oh buddy. <laughs> it's a tragedy. It really is. And and then, and then you think about the dumb things you did as a teenager where you're like, Oh, I had, I, I, I could have been, I, 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 this person was reaching out and I was just too dumb and angry and, and young to see it. So, and, mm-hmm. and to King's credit, he does that really well and he's unsparing. And that's actually one of the reasons I think it is Harold is kind of him grappling with his own demons and his own writerly alter ego. Um, I think there's a lot of King in Harold. I really do. Mm. I like, I like that Harold is, is weak, not mm-hmm. really evil. He's weak and his yeah. weakness mm-hmm. is exploited. He fails to make good decisions because he's weak and, and for reasons, right. But, and then he's exploited by flag, essentially mm-hmm. his weakness. And he, he, you know, he doesn't get a reward. He ends up dead because he flag doesn't really trust him either. Right. And, and yeah. uh, he's because he's too smart, too much. Yeah, thinking. yeah he thinks too much and he, and, and he's going to be trouble. You've all read Good Omens, right? Where they talk yeah. about how Crowley didn't really fall from heaven so much as he just kind of sauntered down slowly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where where it's not where it wasn't a whole lot of intentionality. It was just a series of small decisions that added up, and that's yeah. sort of like Jason said: it's the weakness. It's Harold's Harold's condition as a result of all these things cascading. And I like that his weakness is sort of all revolving around his ego. He sees himself as so much better than everybody around him, and that is something that I, as a teenager. Now, looking back, I realize I can relate to that. I didn't recognize it at the time, but... <laughs> oh, that was such a defense mechanism, though, because his dad picked on him, and he felt awkward, and out, and, and so he, you know, you see how, because there's that, that lovely chapter where he kills himself, and boy, that's a turn of phrase. Um, there's that chapter where he kills himself, and you basically get taken through the autobiography of, autobiography of, of the formation of Harold, and... Um, you know, from when he's a small boy and his, his dad is saying all these terrible things about him and he's perpetually living in this pretty old little sister's shadow and you can see where all of the hurts keep piling on and he kind of has to create these defenses to push people away before they can hurt him again. And that's where he gets the superiority complexes because it's safer and easier to go on the offensive. That is why I love both his, his written final declaration where he signs his name Hawk and the fact that it gets dismissed later by our, our, our four traveling white saviors who are like, oh, this is pitiful dying declaration. And they just completely like, whatever, Harold, this is And they keep yeah. going. <laughs> like he doesn't even have any written monument where people are like, oh, he's, he's conscripted the truth to print. It's, it's all ugh, whatever. <laughs> it was a little late. It's a little bit late by that point. Just a little yeah. bit. If you've blown everybody up and fled yeah. town and yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd has a similar situation where he is a person, a vic- not a victim of circumstance, but like is weak and yeah. his weakness is exploited. Like, because again, there are things he's not a good person, right? But yeah. uh, there are things in him that are were redeemable, but Flag basically waits for him to be near death and, like, you know, mm-hmm. and and ready to eat his cellmate. Yeah. He would have gone to Vegas anyway, but if you wait until he's almost dead, you can get him as a lawyer, you know, completely loyal yes. for life. Like that, yeah. that type of. I mean, which Lloyd even recognizes in the end that, like, he essentially recognizes he waited until I was at my weakest and extracted yeah. undying loyalty from me, and I'm going to give him that because I'm just, you know, like, it's 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 another sad situation of of a you know a, a similar person who was and, and 
using flag is like, well, if there's no Randall flag around, you don't have to worry because weak people won't be exploited in this way. I mean, Randall flag is a stand-in for all the other things that are going to exploit uh, weakness or insecurity or internal conflict uh, in the world. It's just convenient narrative shorthand. Uh, I'd like to briefly mention one of my favorite really short-lived characters, which is Starkey, the general who kind of goes crazy <gasps> watching the videos oh, of everybody yes. dead. He's really bothered the guy by the, the guy's face, in the, face in the soup. Yeah. <laughs> and so much of what happens to the country is his fault because yeah. he's the one that says, kill anyone who says there's a super flu, put every city on lockdown. But yeah. I think... You have that poor journalist in West Virginia whose last act is to try to put out a broadsheet before he dies. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I think Starkey is an interestingly tragic character because he's clearly gone crazy. And in a book this size, King can take his time showing him going crazy and then going down and killing himself. But fixing the face in the soup first. Yeah. And then the next guy sits in his chair. It's like, and... why can't he have cleaned off the face at least? Why did, yep. he, why did he leave the soup on the face? <laughs> Just sits yep. down and takes over right there. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the dark humor of the book is like, you can... You can't tell, but it's just, oh, it's going to be sad. That guy's going to slowly go mad while watching the same thing. But there's there's humor in a lot of this. The absurdity of the apocalypse is, is I mean, even chapter 38, you can even think about some of those passages are just like slapstick death comedy of like, what could possibly go wrong with these people? Uh, but, you know, it, that's that's throughout the entire book, like that he's not, not afraid to, the characters aren't afraid and King isn't afraid to dare you to laugh at the terrible mm-hmm. things that are happening. But- uh, I'm going to mention the trash can man. Uh, I yeah. love the trash can man. He is a pure character. He knows what he wants. Yes. And he goes and does it. Fire. Yeah, and Fla- Flag totally distracted him from his mission. He's such a poor baby. He's basically Beavis. I mean, you yeah. know. Like once, no, once I saw Beavis and Butthead, I was yep. like, holy f- it's the trash can man. And he's also Flag's big weakness is that he finds trash can man as endearing as I do. So yeah. even... Even after it's clearly a bad idea to have this guy running around inside your group, he doesn't seem to care that much about shutting him down. Well, he is useful. He does have skills. Like he's he's the only No, Flag's big problem is he mistakes crazy for stupid. Well, I mean, like he wants he wants a trash can man's abilities. Trash can man has a supernatural ability to understand machinery. He needs that. He needs him to get like the fighter planes back up at that base or whatever. Yeah, and but he's willing to he assume blows up the first tank. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, really, like I was saying, he interrupted the trash can. Trash man could have finally had a comfortable. All he was going to do was going to burn every city in the United States, and he would have done that for the rest of his life. And Flag is like, no, actually, you have to come to Vegas and go to work. And I'd be like, oh, seriously? Do you realize how much stuff I can burn in this country? It's just, you know, I go yeah, out the west. East Coast the... is pretty dense. I could, I could spend years here. Yeah, yeah I mean, eventually, he would have blown himself up. But that's the way he wanted to go. But like, it, King, Steve even Ola! King has such. <laughs> King even has uh, sympathy for, like, the craziest of his characters. It's so easy to make a crazy pyromaniac, but no, he's got to give Trash Can Man a backstory to say, why is he crazy? What happened to him? I mean, obviously he has mental illness, but also people were terrible to him, too. Like, everyone's yeah. everyone's got their reasons. Everyone's got their story. Even the people who are just, you know, unredeemable. Like, even Flag has kind of, you know, they, they, they not to make him sympathetic, but to explain <laughs> that he has feelings, too. He's not just pure evil who knows exactly what he's doing he has doubts he's not sure what's going on yes he is he's pure evil who knows what he's doing and has doubts though i mean you talk about his vague memories and 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 how he incites the worst in what i do like is how stephen king's like well clearly front flag is responsible for the fact that the 60s turned into the the complete cluster flock of the 70s because it, it has to be evil and not human nature but 
you know, flag, the, the point is his flag's doubts are supposed to be, well, he's wavering because the forces of good are finally getting their act together and uh, hitting the road. That, that's always been my take on it, is that, that the idea is that evil strengthens when nobody works in opposition, but once opposition gets organized and starts working, then the nature of evil is inherently challenged. And that's kind of a theme through a lot of King's work, where like once you get the band together and everyone has sex before vanquishing a clown or whatever, it is <laughs> or whatever it is they have to do in a specific book, like once the band is together, it all it all works. I'm gonna have to read that. <laughs> well, well then also evil works. Evil works through people. Like it needs a vessel, and so the vessel, the vessel of evil, in lots of Stephen King's stories, like you get the impression that the force working through them starts to lose faith in their vessel. Like, oh, this vessel sucks. And then it starts to all (laughs) fall apart when it's like, I thought you were a good vessel for my evil intentions, but now things are falling apart. And so the the evil person will get abandoned by the supernatural power or the powers will start to waver. And it's like, you always feel like it's the, it's the black cloud going, all right, well, this isn't working. I'm out of here. Like he's going to start over again on that Island. You're like, let's try this again. (laughs) You know, flag is more than just a vessel and that he's, you know, sort of weaved throughout the entire thing as something more significant than that and as opposed to just some random guy who gets possessed by some evil spirit or aliens or whatever but it's the same type of thing where it, nobody gets to be beyond the, the their humanity beyond like the, the the things that bother humans anger jealousy like like the old testament god who, who you know shows all the same attributes of humans you know that why, why would he be jealous or why would he be wrathful why would you know demand all these things why why does flag ever have doubts why does he get frustrated why do why do those things happen all well because he's also a person kind of one of the things i like about flag um it's it's fun to have this character who's just you know the walking dude he's he's a bad guy he's supernaturally something or other and he and bad things are going to happen and and you get that feeling of that epic quest kind of thing is playing out it is a little lord of the rings like in a way right this is oh you know what's flag gonna do but the thing i like is flag doesn't cause the apocalypse right really nope. uh, well i mean no right? i don't we, think he does that's no. our he fault just, just shoddy workmanship on one door yeah that's that's, it. that's yeah. it's really our fault it's humanity's failing that causes its own end flag is just there to take advantage of what happens next right which i lo- i really like th- that it's like now is my now is my uh it's my cue right now now i can get to work he's just wandering around aimlessly on the road then he suddenly goes oh something's going on now oh, yeah He's as opportunistic as a virus. It's a nice metaphor. Yeah. uh, One thing I like about the way Flag is introduced is I have read none of the Dark Tower books at all, but just the few sentences of saying, some people call him the walking dude or the hard case. Like, it immediately feels like this is a legendary character you should have heard of already. (laughs) Oh yeah. Should we talk about the time frame a little bit? I've got a in my little book uh, bookmark that I got from Doubleday when I bought the book. It says the setting of the book has been changed from 1980 to 1990. Yes. But Stephen King is the same age. They throw a Madonna line in there when Lloyd is strangling somebody, and that's how they update it. And they also <laughs> and they also um, head off the AIDS comparison because if you remember the whole point to to well, it's a super footwear shop because it's shifting antigen in your body just can't keep up. <laughs> and then what do you know? Grid turns into HIV, which basically does the same thing to your immune system. And so they had to find a way to explain why this wasn't AIDS. And those and those are the two big changes they've made. And uh, they I, they put another cup or pulp. Another couple of pop culture references in. I know there's yeah. one to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh. Enjoy, kids. <laughs> that was 1990. 
Yeah. yeah, see, I had no idea. I had no idea that the original was set in a different time because I didn't get a fancy bookmark explaining yeah, uh-huh. all of the differences. So I didn't know that until you guys were mentioning it in like the, the emails for the prep for this podcast. I was it kind of blew my mind a little bit. So this is fascinating. Yeah, I'm not sure quite why. I mean, I guess they're marketing it and they said, well, how about you update it so it's more current with today? This, that's my publishing industry executive voice, by the way. Or well, justify <laughs> someone by pointing out. But but it has problems because there there are some, um, having not read the, the original, I can't really do a direct comparison, but it feels to me um, like there are lots of places where, you know, we've taken things that are tropes of characters from the 70s. And now we just say it's the 90s or it's yes. 1990 and it doesn't actually track with how mm-hmm. how the I, I you know, now, now looking back from all this time later, I feel I feel like it would be, feel better if it was set in 1980 because it would just be further back in that era. Yeah. Uh, specifically, yeah. Larry Underwood's Underwood. backstory. Yes. yes. Larry yeah. Larry Underwood, Underwood. is yes. full of people saying, save the N word bebop for the cleaning crew. And you're but, all, wait, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> we don't like that rock and roll it, music. It was a very old record label. But... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, no, yeah. It's... Really, I think the problem is, for me, the characters don't talk like they're in 1990. They talk like they're Stephen King a lot of the time. Well, sure. Yeah. That happens a lot. One specific example I wrote down for early in Fran's description of herself. Good figure. Long legs that got appreciative glances. Prime stuff was the correct frat house term. She looky, believed. looky, here comes Nookie. Yeah. Yeah. Looky, 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 here comes Nookie. Miss College Girl, 1990. 1990, yeah. I was in college was in, in college 1990. 1990. I had to college that no one yeah. would talk like that. No. No, no. So that, that's a problem with Stephen King's writing is that Steve, Stephen King came of age in the 60s and yeah. was an adult mm-hmm. in the 70s. And so eternally, like as we were all eternally in whatever age we were adolescents, he cannot get out of that. And when he tries to move forward, like like when he, I, you know, in it, in it, he's got the kid on the skateboard and everything. It's clear that he doesn't understand what skateboards are, or why kids skateboard. He has a vague notion of it. Someone told him about skateboarding once. It's like those bikes be that we used to ride in you, the fifties. You can't be safe on a skateboard, Mister. That yeah, right. is standing on a little wooden plank affixed to wheels. <laughs> and and it's endearing because he writes, you know, like and I don't and I don't want him to be like, oh, I need to immerse myself in modern culture. And so maybe it's better that he sets his book in places either places where it doesn't. Matter like the Dark Tower, where you make up everything and everything's a mishmash of everything anyway, or do it in an era that you're familiar with, or with people are that are the age you're familiar with. So right. like he probably should not write young adults at this point in his career, but he could write a 50 year old man pretty darn well, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it's like you get back to the characters. I like the idea of Larry Underwood a lot because I like because the notion of some B slash C lister surviving the apocalypse and having to 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 deal. Yeah. With with their abrupt fall from grace. Like that's a really interesting story. I would read an update where like one of the minor Kardashians was left over and 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 trying to make their way out of Los Angeles or whatever. And um That again, happens in the postman. It does. I was about to mention Tom Petty yeah. as the mayor of the village where, where Kevin Costner's all, don't I know you're from somewhere? And Tom Petty's all, that was another life. And boom, the scene goes from there. It's, <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. I have to see if we can find it on YouTube. But, but Larry but, um, but Larry Underwood, I mean, and this goes to this goes to the time, this goes to the time frame too, is I picture him as being one of those kind of, you know, 
hairy, uh, curly-haired singer-songwriter guys from the late late seventies. He, he's not in somebody... the New York City of the seventies. Like when he's yes. when he's in his his like that. I picture in my head. I didn't realize this until we started talking about the the time period. I also didn't know that the time period re- had been reset because I guess I threw yeah. away that bookmark. But like in uh, Larry's yeah. scenes, I read them as if he's he's in a movie in the seventies in New York. Like there's graffiti yeah, yeah, everywhere, yeah. and, and his and, mom you know, is just... this total cl- head cliche who makes him eggs. He's picking up women who think he's you ain't no nice guy, and and. Like you just know he's got hair. He spends a lot of time on. Um, this is not a guy who was on the church. His shirt is open pretty darn low, right? Yeah, he you was know. with the Eagles in California, no question. Yeah. Like no I loved the idea that you'd have somebody who who was like, yeah, I was on a trajectory to become, you know, the 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 the, the featured performer on American Bandstand before Dick Clark and the rest of the planet died from, you know. Oh, uh, Dick, Dick Clark's out there somewhere. I'm telling you. Oh, ageless, huh? <laughs> yeah, maybe he has dark powers. Maybe mm. he's the dark man. Mm. Um, but the talking uh, dude. <laughs> no, that's Ryan uh, Seacrest. There's, that's there's Ryan one dude Seacrest. for each oh thing you God, can do. Oh my God! What do you want to bet? That's how Ryan Seacrest gets all his jobs done. He's like mm. Randall Flag. Um, well, Dick Clark passed on the secret. Oh, crazy! That's what happened. But like Larry, as a as a as a dude in practice, I just I've I have a hard time with him because I'm I'm like, oh my God, Larry, just. Yeah. Yeah, he's a character that I also I also kind of grew into a little bit. I really really just got bored with his story and would skim all of his parts. Um now I am to the point where I can I can kind of understand the the growth that he's going through and and what he's struggling with, but it's still just he still just seems internally whiny to me. Yeah, he's and like I, an I, Apatovian man baby. I could have been <laughs> I was just on the verge and oh. Yeah, he's externally whiny too, but but don't you feel for him like when he takes on the sort of the broken woman reader which is a cliche or whatever but like that he he does feels like so before i was going to be a singer but now i'm responsible for this crazy person's life and i'm going to feel bad when she dies like it's a failure of myself and like that's why he keeps replaying the the girl telling him he's not a nice guy it's like i don't have fame i don't my talent is meaningless Mm -hmm. i i have to be like a person and i'm not and he's he's internally whiny and he's externally whiny and like they try to turn him around, but they never let him get... He never becomes Stu Redman. He's never like, well, Apocalypse no. is here. Larry's ready to face it. Like He's like, oh, come on. Like This sucks. And I don't understand what I'm going to do. And people don't like me, and I don't know how to deal with myself. And my mom is dead, even though she complained a lot. Like he's He is sympathetic from a certain perspective, but I like the fact that they never bring him all the way around. Like Larry always kind of stays Larry. He, and he's maybe the most realistic... Yeah, I always just want to take Lucy out for coffee. Oh, Lucy, girl, you could do better. Come on. I realize that most of the planet has died, but there are still dateable dudes who are not named Larry. And <laughs> he has hung up on his ex-girlfriend, and she has hung up on a Ouija board, and you are well away from that mess. Now, don't let him knock you up, because being a single mother in the after in the afterscape is no fun. All the babysitters <laughs> have died. Like, you just need to have that talk with Lucy. And, and <laughs> poor woman. Yeah. Oh, that poor woman. So, so we haven't talked about uh, Tom Cullen yet. And oh, I yes. think the, the most interesting thing about Tom Cullen that I like about this is that they sent him to be a spy mm-hmm. because that is exactly the kind of like, yeah, we're the good guys, but I like it's a terrible thing to do. And, they, and like by the time they do it in the book, you can either be like, I'm in the mindset of like, yes, we have to do this because Randall Flagg is really big. And the other side, you're like, wait a second. What do you what do you think you're going to do now? You're going to this poor guy. You're like, well, we like him and everything, but he's really just a pawn on our chessboard. And we here at the town council meeting or whatever it is, we'll have to decide. <laughs> and I mean, judge going, it's like, well, he wants to sacrifice himself or whatever. But sending mm-hmm. Tom Cullen is just he's so rich life. <laughs> so like it's so kind of like, yeah, it's so like he's much older than we think he is, you know, and yeah. so 
it's, it's so brutal and terrible. And like the fact that all these good people kind of agree to it and, and do it, like it shows you that like the rules have to be different. It shows you the power of cults actually, because it's the cult of mother Abigail. Like, yeah. People people had desperately coalesced around her and she had been the friendly figure that saved them from the dreams of, of Randall Flagg. And I think... I do think he he stops a little bit, Stephen King stops a little bit short of, of really poking that home because he softens it a little bit with the fact that Tom sort of when he's under yeah. hypnosis has mm-hmm. this sort of extra sensory power and is able to see things or and channel yeah. smarter than he, yeah and... exactly so it's not quite it's not quite sending a, a, a mentally challenged man into the fray yeah. it's it's a mentally challenged man with some extra stuff going on so maybe he'll but, be okay but, the, but they view it like as a strategic advantage it's like aha but well, they'll never suspect it's like a sleeper agent right yeah. here yeah. they don't know yeah. that it can't read his mind but they're like oh no one will no one will ever suspect like they sent the no one will ever suspect this old man judge ferris goes that doesn't work out well for him but like oh you know like they're they're playing with other people's lives like all it takes is a group of like you've got this how many people are in boulder like not like a a couple hundred a thousand or whatever and then like this tiny little council is deciding the lives of these people like all right you and you and and if they're willing to do it then i guess but like tom cullen is not and that's, that's in in this sort of magical retelling. If you think of what was it really like, they just basically made this guy go, and they convinced themselves that they had hypnotized him to the point where he yeah. would be able to fool them. Right? Yeah. Where, that's I'm pretty the sure he could talk normally when we hypnotized him. Right? He, he was smarter <laughs> than he seemed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that happened. <laughs> he, he he talked about the phases of the moon and how beautiful they were, and it was beautiful. It was like poetry. Yeah, but but like you know, and it is, that's a trope too. Like he, uh, Stephen King loves the the, mm-hmm. uh, the mentally fool. deficient. The whole, the, yeah, the the, 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 the innocent yeah. fool. The magical kind of like they're always uh you know uh morally beautiful inside yeah. but yeah. but most of the time he like I, I think he respects tom cullen as a character but i think when they send him it shows that the the values that they all held dear have to be adjusted if they're going to survive in this post-apocalyptic world and by that point they're all ready well it's a totally old testament move you know i mean this is the same old testament where god asked people to sacrifice their children and so how is sacrificing an adult without a whole lot of free will or agency that much different you know, I mean, that's kind of the message of this whole book is that stuff has just gotten all Old Testament on us. Yeah. 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 Although King does doesn't have the heart to kill him in the end and ends nope. up having him come nope. back and be the, the savior for everything. And, I mean, it, it's heartwarming. I mean, like he spends the whole book with the M.O.O. thing, M.O.N. Yeah. And you get the big payoff at the end. where he spells, <laughs> Yeah, he spells I love that. Moon and he leaves. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it works every I mean, like time. I said, this is kind of like pulpy and trashy, but it's like I like that Nick Andrus becomes his ghost spirit guide. I, I think that's very yeah. sweet. It's a testament to the power of friendship and all that. Yeah, and he could talk and when in his visions and everything. Like it's Which I think it's it, it, I guess it's necessary, but I think it's kind of BS because one of, of because Nick's deafness was was absolutely integral to to who he was as a person, too, you know? He he had that profound sense of isolation and that profound observer effect and that that's what made him so compelling. Is this is a guy who very consciously chose almost everything that he was or who he chose to be, and he's one of the most deliberate deliberate and self-made people in the book. Yeah, but Tom wishes he could speak, and yeah. I think the vision yeah. is from Tom's perspective. Exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. like it, it's it's nice. Like Stephen King is good at rewarding you. Like that's why he's a mm-hmm. Brazilian selling author. He's good at giving people <laughs> what they want, and he can he can do the highs and the lows and the happy and the sad. And like a lot of it in this book is it's not so much fan service. It's like, all right, you do that thing so well, we'll take it. I mean, it's it. <laughs> It's like I said. It's a lot like he. It's a reason he's compared to Dickens so much, right? Because he. It's a very you know Dickens. Because <laughs> Dickens wrote by maybe. the word too. <laughs> 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 well, Dickens had that pretty. Dickens had the, had some of the best names in the business. Um, you know, I mean, he was just a very apt namer, and I think that's that um, Stephen King does a good job with the names too. But, 
but that's neither here nor there. Can I share my theory on the kid at this point? Yeah, we, I, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm off, I'm off the grid, and and uh, I'm, I'm asking for anything you guys want to talk about that that we haven't talked about before we go. So go for it, Monty. All right, the kid is what Stephen King thinks is cool. He drives a car from 1932. He has a leather jacket and, and pointy-toed shoes. And pointy-toed <laughs> shoes, and he's got the swept hair. And he actually refers to him at one point as a miniature street punk from hell, which is not the best phrase Stephen King ever wrote. (laughs) And my argument is that the kid would work if this was set during Stephen King's childhood. Mm -hmm. But in (laughs) Or during Prohibition. (laughs) Yes. But in 1990? It's just weird. He is played to be ridiculous, though. Like he, uh, he's 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 mocked by he, this character is mocked by the author in his uh, characterizations of what he does. So I don't think. Although I mean, he has a pretty cool death because they find him with his hands around the neck of a wolf. Which, yeah, he's which, mocked you know. by the author, but the author clearly thinks he's the coolest. This guy uh, looks like the coolest I, I, thing, but he can't stand up to I, it. I think he's a caricature of the people Stephen King saw in his youth who thought they were cool, and Stephen oh, King okay. thought they were not as cool as they actually thought they were, and actually they might be eaten by wolves. I think the right. sodomy with the gun kind of tilts it towards John's direction. I think it, I think it still would have worked uh, had it been a little bit earlier because in the 90s, that kind of character is so far removed that it's not even like this was recently cool. It's like, oh, was this a thing? <laughs> you know, it's, well, there's, it's there's so, so far few people away. left, though. He, he could just be crazy because like when we see him, True. it's like he's into he's into whatever brand of beer he's into. And he's just like dressed up like a crazy person. And it's like you don't know if, 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 if most of the people light. are dead. He might have he might have gone crazy. Are you guys familiar with the Key and Peel sketch that takes place after the apocalypse, where you've got one guy in total survival mode, and then he runs into another guy who is basically dressed for like Pride Day and is yeah. just tripping his balls off to EDM and uh, the survive it, and that basically makes me think of the discussion we're having now, where I think the kid was like, you know what, there, there's no one around, and I am free to let my my tiny little freak flag fly, <laughs> and uh, unfortunately trash can man ran into him and i think what it's supposed to illustrate is that this guy is just he gets victimized by everybody there's literally nobody who is ever kind to trash can man because that's like because that's except for randall flag my life for you yeah yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know and and but but there's no human being that that ever offers this guy any fellowship or anything other than, than 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 fear and contempt and scorn and shame and that that is to me what makes the trash can man just such an ultimately pitiable and tragic figure like he just—it's it, just—it's just injustice after injustice heaped on this dude, and I feel terrible for him. I always feel yeah. terrible for him whenever I read the book. You know, it's—it's—it just sucks to be him. <laughs> I don't like the kid, but I love everything about the trash can man, which, yeah. which is what gets me through those scenes. Mm. Oh my god, especially when he like leaves with the wolves and he's petting the wolves as he goes. Oh, yeah, it kills me. <laughs> Where he like just pets them. He pets them like they're dogs. Oh my god. Speaking of which, should we should yeah. we mention the dog? Should we mention Kojak? Oh, oh right. Big and his Steve. little doggy dreams and Big his paw Steve. twitching. Yeah. And then he shows up again later. Yes, because he's been following all this time. Since he's a dog. Because he's a dog. It's just like know? the incredible journey, only the adult version. I think, I think it's interesting how there's the animal breakdown. Like the wolves and the crows will always be Randall flags and the cats are just creepy and, and the horses are all dead and... and I, I oh find yeah, it, I love that. Humanity's touch. best friends are dead. Yeah, I I, I love how they split it up because I'm like, what about pigs? Are pigs morally neutral? Do they pick sides? You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I I love that because it doesn't he doesn't explain it medically at all, but it's no. such mm-hmm. a great touch to say, oh, and this flu also kills horses. Yeah, 
thought okay. we did. Yeah. What else? Uh, what else? Anything else? Um, baby, can you dig your man? Sounds like uh, a terrible song. It does, yep. <laughs> but I, but I'm, I I, I kind of well, feel like maybe that's. I mean, terrible songs are popular. Yeah, I think it's I'm, kind of suppo- yep. supposed to yeah. be like he's not. A, it would never he, have been a hit in 1990. Yeah, he's not though. Bob Dylan, right? But 19 in, in 1980, he's like a Marshall Crenshaw kind of guy, yeah. except not as good. And he's got a just he happened to have a hit song, but it doesn't. It's not a very good song. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at my notes, I want to share probably my favorite sentence in the book, which is by dawn they were running east across Nevada, and Charlie was coughing steadily. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that whole first chapter I, I really like because yeah. I like uh, that scene kind of like he's not a big character. He dies pretty darn quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But he's just at his desk. The alarm goes off and the door just happened to not close. Why did the door not close? I don't know. Sometimes the door doesn't close. Maybe it closed a millisecond after he got through. I don't know. But he's like alarm door didn't close. And he makes a split second decision, which is to get out of there. And he awakes his family. And like th- when you repeatedly read it, you know what is happening during those sequences. And you're like, don't go back home. Oh, You've just killed yeah. your entire. You know, and just it's killed just, everybody. Where are we going, Daddy? I was a seepin. Uh, oh, I wrote that down too. I was yeah. a seepin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sickening. No, that's yeah. well, and that's and that's the thing that gets you into this. I mean, what a great way to get into this book is with this. You know, increasing. You know what this book is about. You know it's going to be disastrous, but to watch it happen step by step is fascinating, and that's what gets you in. And then you're then you're trapped in the vortex, and you're a thousand pages later you've read the book again so uh we're about done anything that we have not talked about that somebody wants to throw out before i wrap it up um how about this sentence the world he thought not according to garp but according to the super flu (laughs) oh that was clearly (laughs) wow wow does he kids in the 90s were wild about in 1200 pages you're gonna get a few clunkers wow Wow. Well, you know, Larry Underwood is not a, a singer in a world where AHA has hit the charts with Take On Me. That's all I'm no. saying. It's just not possible. The world changed after that day. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> all right. We have come to the end. Um, the battle between uh, good and evil has been fought and John has been defeated. Wait a second. That's not right. <laughs> I, I wasn't involved. I was off someplace else. I didn't go to either you're, city. You're in a pleasant cave. Somewhere. Yeah, Boulder looks awful. Go to San Diego. Yeah, that's that's. I, yeah, it gets cold in Boulder in the winter. Don't go there. On that note, we are really gonna break break away and uh, plan our uh, post apocalypse plans again. Until Ooh. then, I would like to thank my guests for surviving past the uh, the super flu and joining me to talk about this uh, really fun classic book that we've all read multiple times. Lisa Schmeiser, thank you. Pleasure as always. Thank you. <laughs> Monty, Ashley, thanks for being here. I'm a righteous man. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> you sound like Ralph Wiggum when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> Erica Ensign, thank you for being here. Thank you, and thank you for inspiring me to read this yet again. It was it was a great trip. All pun right. intended. Great, yeah, great trips. The captain will take you on some great trips. John Syracuse, thank you so much for being here. Life was such a wheel that no podcast could stand upon it for long, Jason. Mm deep m-o-o-n that spells good night everybody you guys want to live in the post-captain trips world or would you or are you at a point in your life now you're like oh dude i hope i go first i hope i'm like one of the first ones out the door
because my, my answer has changed at different points in my life, you know, and, and I, I find it interesting to, 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 to walk myself through a different apocalyptic scenarios <laughs> and be like, is this one I'd want to be alive in or, or no? <laughs> I feel like I've spent enough of my life picturing what I would do in a post-apocalyptic scenario that mm-hmm. it would be a shame not to give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do? What would you do, Cher? Uh, well, if it's a case like this where everybody's dead, but there's no immediate threat like zombies or aliens or something then I think I would just try to set up a, the life of a hermit. Mm-hmm. Like, find a place that has food enough until I'm going to die naturally, and then collect all the books I can and go time enough at last on time this situation. Last, well, yeah. this, this is a bad strategy. Well, what would you, <laughs> you do? Need, you need to have... That's fine, except you need to bring enough technology and non-hermit-type stuff so you can off yourself when it turns out you have some terminal disease that's going to make you die in agony. And like That's mm. what I think about in the post-apocalypse. It's like... All right, so first, I have, my whole family has to be dead because I don't want them to be in the apocalypse, and that's just bad and trying to defend them from the other people with guns and everything. Mm-hmm. So assume everyone's dead except for me. My family happened to die. I don't want that to happen, but if it did, I would be okay <laughs> in that world. You could adopt <laughs> one, of, <laughs> one of Lex's kids is probably around. Right, exactly. Yeah. But what I think about mostly is like the comfort that we're all used to, like being the yes. right temperature, not getting rain on you or whatever. And it's not too hard to get that comfort for yourself if nothing is destroyed and there's not marauding thread or anything because you can pick kind of the nicest place you have or whatever. But you have to sort of have all these contingency plans for like, I need one of each of one of these things. I need all these things lined up. I need I need to have the ability to kill myself if uh, when I get old or injured sort of on me at all times because the worst thing you want to happen is for you to, to fall and break your leg and not be able to walk home and it getting too cold and you're, you're you know, like... It's just terrible deaths are possible when there's, yeah. when there's nobody around. So you have to be prepared for those. It's kind of like the astronauts with the little, like, they're prepared. At, you know, well, it looks like you're going to die. They all have the little cyanide pills or whatever they have. Do you um, have a source on that wait, statement? what? I don't know. <laughs> That's what they tell you. The, the, the stories say that, anyway, uh, in, in the post-apocalyptic world, you would have to account for all of those things. So, so... So Monty, the key is in your cave where you live as a hermit. You're with all your books, your library cave. Uh, uh, have you a, mean have, castle? Have yes. Have, have, a, have a space heater. Yeah, and and some means of offing yourself. Like yeah, <laughs> I mean that's just like in your cave. And plus, you have to deal with like fresh water and food. Like you'd have to develop a system where you can live in some reasonable amount of comfort. Otherwise, you spend all your time like looking for food and making sure you survive the winter, and that's not really fun. Oh yeah, I don't want a post-apocalypse where I have to go camping all the time. That's awful. Oh, that's... Yeah. Yeah. I just recently moved to a brand new city, so all of my old apocalypse plans are completely out the window, and I'm really having oh. to rebuild. So I haven't <laughs> I haven't actually gotten to that point where I have figured out what I would do, uh, you know, well post-apocalypse. However, I have sort of thought of the, the short-term things and, like, you know, how I could use Lego to build some contraptions mm. to collect rainwater off the balcony <laughs> and, you know, that sort of thing. I'm just thinking but about the, the short-term. You have to broaden your horizons, because the world is your oyster, like, I, you should go to a place where you could never afford to live, a beautiful place with natural beauty and natural resources, where someone has already built a multi-million dollar complex with lovely views. Like, that's your opportunity now. The whole world is yours. I guess I was thinking of the, you know, having to hide in the apartment uh, because, because yeah, of the zombies marauders. put a damper on, they put a damper on things and then you not, have to not, go more sort zombies. of military. Zombies, zombies never factor into it. I don't like zombies. It's just Looters people. and rapists with a school bus. Yeah, dude, let's be, <laughs> let's be real. The, the post-apocalyptic scenario for a woman is a whole lot different than yeah. one for a guy, I feel. Well, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm thinking like that enough people would be dead that you could realistically not expect to see another person 
Like yeah. in the stand, they don't see a lot of other people. I know uh, that Jason just did the, did the math, and it seems like there should be way more people. But I'm thinking of a stand like Apocalypse, where it's like twos and threes bump into each other and arrive in, in Boulder in like a group of twenty, and that's a big deal. Yeah. And you could you could you know you could realistically just pick oh, a place God. where you, you know, want to live. Having a road trip with and... nineteen other people just sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, it that's was. what I said. Don't go to yeah. Boulder. Like, yeah. stay in the Hamptons. It'll be nicer. <laughs> I would probably, I would probably try to move south because yeah. it's kind of cold up here for yeah. most of the year. I recommend that. that nobody's going to be watching the border. No. Yeah, I would cross. recommend. I would recommend against having a summer home and a winter home, even though it seems like it's a thing you want to yeah. do because traveling. <laughs> like, job. then yeah. you might run into someone else, and if you do run into someone else, it's probably not going to be good also until you learn to read the weather you may get caught out in an early winter yeah. or you yeah have adequate food stores especially if you have to do your own agriculture um i was kind of permanently psychologically traumatized by the road and so mm. and so at this point i'm not sure i'd want to survive any apocalypse just because it seems like it would be so effing miserable i mean you'd have no 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 indoor plumbing which is kind of a deal killer for me and if I had, oh, God forbid, I have to take care of somebody else. And But on the other hand, there's the crippling grief from losing everyone I love. And I, I think the stand, though, the stand, this is this clean apocalypse where it, it's not quite so bad because, um, you know, the babies, the babies live, apparently, right? And, and we've just gone down to a very small population, but a small population is much more um, tendable, manageable than, than two million people in the U.S. You can You can do something with that. So I feel like society will rebuild and that and that there will be structure and there is a future whereas in something like the road literally you're just waiting around for everybody to die yeah, yeah. like i yeah. said i don't, I think, I don't the, think anybody the, the, the would pick that the road traumatized me about that was just how vulnerable you are when you have somebody else you're responsible for and so i think if you're 13 and you survive the apocalypse then by all means grab your boat, sail up the Atlantic coast, dock in the Potomac River, and go live in the Smithsonian. You know, the plan works. But, I mean, now, again, like I said, either I'd be, holy crap, I've lost my entire family, or I'd be paralyzed with terror over trying to be responsible for, you know, keeping a preschooler alive in the afterscape. And, and both of those prospects just seem awful. <laughs> also, Washington, D.C. in August is awful. Well, you don't you have know, air conditioning. I didn't have a lot. Especially of there's a lot of dead well, bodies. Well, that's yeah. what you mm. you'd have to get the electricity back up. My mom did not believe in air conditioning growing up, and my right. reason and my reasoning was that if I went to the Smithsonian, they probably had backup generators for all of the archival quality mm. artifacts they had, and failing that, they also had cool basements made of marble where mm. you could you could comfortably sleep and then i could spend my days reading everything i wanted to or dressing up in the first lady's outfits or or playing on the dinosaur <laughs> bones or whatever it is i wanted to do when i was 13 good, so, plan. good plan yeah well you know having dc as your own playground imagine you could go play basketball on the uh top floor of the supreme court the highest court in the land wait a minute didn't the didn't um didn't Randall Flagg effectively nuke or torch the entire West Coast? Because there's like a there's a line in there about what he did to San Francisco and Los Angeles before coming. Well, coming you know, it's there's probably lots of available. Which room bumps still. me out because San Francisco would actually be a great place to ride out the apocalypse. Like the weather's really good. There's a lot of arable land. People probably have victory gardens you could pillage. Yeah. Sounds good. Free range vegetarians to prey on when you want to resort to cannibalism. <laughs> Maybe. There might if any yeah. of them made it. Yeah. Maybe their diets made them weak and spindly. 